This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When I interviewed the people around who worked with Elon, they enjoyed that experience. It was the most intense working experience of their lives, but it was also super enjoyable. They felt like they were a part of something important, as part of something bigger than themselves. And that can seem a little odd when you're talking about, again, like a late 1990s payment services startup, but would that we could all work in places like that. I think most people would feel lucky if they had a place like that that they worked. And that's what I, I tried to capture, and I hope I did. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Jimmy Sony, an author and journalist named one of Forbes magazine's 30 Under 30 in Media. His new book, The Founders, takes a look at how PayPal was a launching pad for some of the world's most impactful tech entrepreneurs. Jimmy, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thanks for having me, Ken. I really appreciate it. I thought this was going to be a typical author interview. You've got this great new book out. And I want folks to buy it, but as part of the prep, I revisited your last couple books, Rome's Last Citizen about Cato and A Mind at Play, which I loved about Claude Shannon. Uh, Would you say he was the inventor or the discoverer of information theory? You know, he invented it. It's actually a rare case where you can be that boastful, although funny (laughs) enough, I'm not sure he'd want us to, right? So there's a part of that. It's a little weird. Yeah. So you you have this desire to examine figures who have changed the way we live our lives from people whose way of thinking and approach to politics helped shape the modern world to, to people whose inventions and discoveries and Claude Shannon did the same. But in this latest book, you you actually have the chance to talk to this kind of person and these kind of people while they're still alive. I don't know if I'm being melodramatic. I guess it's not unusual for biographers to to want to still tell the stories of people who've changed the world. But as someone who has gone from ancient Rome to the present, I, I think you might have some special insight in how those short lives have changed every single one of ours. Yeah. What what is that special ingredient that makes people like this that ambitious? Yeah, it's funny. You were the first to pick up, and I think it's because we've known each other a while and you've read my other work. Like writing about dead people is much easier. <laughs> let's, just, let's just get that out of the way. Like when, when they're gone, it's far easier to think about them, to write about them, to find all the things that have been written. Um, it's interesting because I'm not sure, and I'm not sure if this is true for you or others, like I'm not so sure that I, I sort of set out to like have a theme to my work, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not as though I'm self-consciously like, oh, I'm going to go look for people who change the world. Generally, what I do is I go look for a book that hasn't been written about something. And if I can't find it, I kind of seek the answer to my own question. And sometimes that results in a book. And honestly, sometimes that just results in adding something to cart on Amazon that's going to be published later. So, but what I would say is, in each case, I think I'm wrestling with figures who are in tension with their environment in some way, right? So, in the case of Cato, there's like the obvious tension of he's in tension with basically all of Rome's elite Republicans, right? Claude Shannon is challenging the conventional wisdom on how people have thought about information and thought about its quantifiability and its malleability and our ability to understand it. Um, he takes it basically from like what's ethereal to something that's more concrete, right? And in the case of you know Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and Reid Hoffman and the kind of cluster of people who are at PayPal, but really I would also say their generation of technologists, you have people who are struggling with the tail end of like the dot-com hype <laughs> and then this enormous crater in the economy. And coming out of that, like how do you reinvigorate you know, that sector of the economy? What do you do to make a website not just popular, but profitable? And so I could sort of draw out what makes each of those people 
successful, but I think actually one of the common themes is that they're all struggling with their environment in some way or struggling with someone else in their field. And I, and I do think that's actually maybe one of these like keystone things about greatness or about changing the world, right? Which is not used a cliche, but we'll go with the phrase. It, it, you, you're going to struggle. You're going to like, you're going to have bankruptcies. You're going to have, you know, hopefully you don't meet the end that Cato met, but you're going to have detractors. I mean, Claude Shannon, for as lauded as he was and as lauded as he is today, there were mathematicians who thought of his work as insufficiently rigorous, right? And it took 50 years for some people to come around. But you are, you are subject to criticism and scrutiny and being laughed at and being mocked. Certainly true in the case of the PayPal folks. Uh, PayPal was called one of the 10 worst business ideas of 1999, right? They got rejected for funding over 100 times, right? These are the people who run Silicon Valley today. They got turned down for funding over and over and over again. So I, I think that's a part of it is, and I don't mean to start off on a negative note, but it feels like it, it's worth appreciating that, that leadership bears those scars for a reason. In the case of tech, that iconoclasm, the struggle that characterizes giants like Plato, I'm sorry, Cato, or, well, I guess add Plato to it as well, um, <laughs> Claude Shannon, <laughs> that outsider streak in tech comes across as, as weirdness, right? There's an eccentricity yep. that tech just amplifies in a way that other industries and walks of life don't when elevating their own giants. Why do you think that is? It's a really keen observation because I, I do think there's an element of, you know, there's a reason that the CEO of America's most valuable automaker today, as measured by market cap, looks and feels so different from auto CEOs of yesteryear, right? Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a person on the street who could tell you actually who the CEO of GM is. There's, you know, you'd have the opposite challenge of if you say Tesla, the next word will be Elon Musk, right? And I think that there, there's something to that. We should explore that. But what I would say is one really simple reason is that you can get an enormous amount done behind a computer screen writing code today. This is truer now than it was 10 years ago. It was truer 10 years ago than it was 10 years before that. And in a funny way, part of what happens is you, you really, normal social graces, right? The sorts of things they teach you at big consulting companies or that you learn at Miss Porter's, like you needn't have those in order to be successful given the leverage of code and the leverage of technology. And so what happens is that, by the way, I, I put myself in this category, not that I'm a technologist, but that I was somebody who part of my, my upbringing, you know, maybe it's weird to admit this, was like behind a computer screen playing video games. And I was socially awkward. And I was a little weird, and maybe I had peculiar interests, and I, I wanted to read instead of be around people. But there's a certain amount of that that in the past I think was selected against, right? Someone like that would be unsuccessful in the Mad Men era, right? Actually, that's a perfect case study. In the Mad Men era, you need to be Don Draper. Today, you can be Elon Musk, right? You can do a great deal through email, Twitter, behind a computer screen, and you don't have to be the person who's going to crack the right joke at every party or be the most popular kid in class. So one way to look at it is tech enables weirdness. Another way to think about it is tech has actually provided like a sector of economic life where the weird can now be enormously successful. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a great technical explanation. And I hope I, I didn't come across as being judgmental of weirdness. I, I love it and well, in a lot of cases and what it can give us. But I'm wondering if there's something beyond the mechanical explanation of engineers behind screens not needing social graces, making it into positions of power. And if there's a more deeply psychological explanation about what is required mentally to think you can actually upend systems and change the world. And ah. that, that I would think, demands the kind of uh, iconoclasm bordering on eccentricity that we see in these companies. It's almost a, a grandeur delusion. I think that's true. And I think that the only way that some of these new technologies are brought into being is because of that delusion, right? Actually, one of the ways that PayPal applies to this is that the reason pay the PayPal alumni are famous is not really because of what they did at PayPal, right? It's everything they did after. So you have a group of people, three people, who go off and decide that internet video needs a revolution. Out comes YouTube. You have people who decide that restaurant reviews and that kind of like local data 
is insufficiently rigorous, interesting, and well-presented. Outcomes Yelp. You have someone who says, you know, space logistics is really run by these big corporations and they don't do a good job and they have a cost plus model in terms of their contracting with the government. Outcomes SpaceX. In order to make any of the, follow- the things I just said, the companies I just said, bring them to life, you have to decide that the Yellow Pages has done it badly for years and years and years and you're going to do better, that the TV companies are terrible and that you're going to upend them, and that Boeing, Boeing is not doing a good enough job. So you do have to have a delusion of delusions of grandeur. I think the other thing, though, that's a little bit more fine-grained is I found, at least, that there was a real appreciation for the leverage that technology provides and that you can do things with it that actually compound over time. So one of the things that's interesting about Silicon Valley is the understanding of things like the power law or about compounding or about how bi- digital businesses and network effects can grow over time which I think is often missing in like other sectors of, of you know, certainly American business. And that requires, I would say, a different way of thinking about how if you're going to burst something into existence and it can eke a little bit of a foothold and create the right kinds of network effects, it can actually in 10 or 20 years beat some of the biggest industries on the planet today, right? And so they do think in time horizons that are actually probably a little bit longer. I think that's part of the ingredients. If we're looking at what the ingredients are, of those sorts of world-beating businesses. It's not just chutzpah, because plenty of people in business have chutzpah, right? A lot of kids graduating from grade schools have chutzpah, go to Goldman Sachs, have chutzpah there. This is, I would say, chutzpah plus an appreciation for the leverage that technology can bring, plus an understanding of what five and 10 and 20-year increments can do when something starts to take off. I'd add one more thing here, which is, you identified something, which is there is an outsider streak and I did find in my interviews, and I interviewed you know over 200 people over many, many years, I did find that there was, um, call it a default way of disagreeing with whatever was said, even if the person who I was interviewing was the one who said it, right? I found this, by the way, to be particularly true in interviewing Peter Thiel, where I would say something, and I might be repeating something that he had said 10 years ago, and he would go out of his way to disagree with himself and then <laughs> explain to me why I was wrong. And I actually thought of it as this kind of, you can call it contrarianism, though I think that word's been overused. I find that that is actually a really interesting way to think about problems, but it's not a way that we are necessarily taught to think about problems sort of in a traditional American you know, mode of education. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's an accident that the people drawn to PayPal were all young. I think it was John Malloy, one of the early investors, said they were all outsiders. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were, were immigrants. I got to find the quote, but I love this idea of the immigrant being the ultimate entrepreneur. Here it is. Immigrating is an entrepreneurial act. This is um, Sachs from, uh, from one of your interviews with him. You take an affirmative step to leave your country and you frequently leave everything behind. That's the ultimate entrepreneurial act. I mean, it's no accident that it took that kind of mindset to birth something like PayPal, which then gave rise to all the other world-changing technologies you described. I think that's right. If you look at the, the call it the masthead of this company, right? Sort of some of the earliest, biggest names. Peter Thiel is an immigrant. Elon Musk is an immigrant. David Sachs is an immigrant. Max Levchin's an immigrant. On and on. And you'd have to run this to ground, but I had heard some amazing statistic about how half of some subset of Silicon Valley companies, call it companies that went public or whatever, half of some sort of you know big group of companies were founded by first-generation immigrants to the United States. I don't think it's an accident. I think there's a certain amount of risk-taking and daring-do that's required to, as David Sachs put it, to leave everything behind. I also, you know, this is going to sound a little funny. I, I got this feeling when I was interviewing them, because I was interviewing people who today are very, very successful uh, financially and otherwise, but weren't when they got their start, there was a certain scrappiness about their willingness to, for example, in the case of Elon, live where he worked. His first office was, you know, there's a futon and a desk. Um, Max Levchin lived in, in, he actually shared an efficiency apartment. And if I go back and look at my own notes, when he first came to Palo Alto, he was sleeping on the mattress on a floor of a friend other people would, who rotated through PayPal would later occupy that mattress. There was a certain, you know, these people who grew up with very little didn't mind having very little when they got started in their careers. And if you are at a, at a startup, no matter how well funded, the expectation is you are going to be 
you know, you're going to be running lean because the point is to generate enough uh, success that you can get more resources along the way, but you don't start out, you know, with high six figure salaries and all the rest. So I think there's a certain scrappiness. I would also argue that it drew other immigrants to the company. One of the things I noticed is the number of people that I interviewed who are alumni from this company who still spoke English with an accent. And in many other places in the United States, that might be held against them. Uh, I have to admit, I speak from personal experience here. My dad was an immigrant. He still speaks English with an accent. And it was definitely held against him when we were growing up in various professional settings. In Silicon Valley, I mean, that's a dime a dozen, right? And, and I think there is something powerful to that. I think it is one of the places in American society that funnels and that channels that immigrant energy into something productive in economic life. Um, I'm not saying it's perfect by no means, but it is this rare place, again, that does that. And I found that it was almost like a disregard for that sort of thing, which, again, might be, might be a knock against you if you were trying to climb the ranks in some more traditional company. How does that scrappiness affect the working culture itself? I'm thinking of the, the trust environment at PayPal, and I think it might have been its predecessor company, uh, and how normal business practices just were, they weren't just thrown out the window. They probably weren't even considered because very few of the people involved were, you know, had MBAs. Um, can you share the story of Santosh Jan Harden and this yeah. brand new, um, I don't know, intern or recruit who's given the, the root password? That, that wouldn't happen at IBM. Santosh is a, is a great case study, and I really appreciate you picking up on that one in particular, and I'll share why. And, and after I tell you the story you asked for, I'll tell another one that's in some ways even better. Um, Santosh Janardin, today actually, I believe, oversees like all of infrastructure at, at Meta, um, which is a pretty high up position. He's also, he was one of, he was, I believe, early, he was early at YouTube. But one of his first jobs in technology is with PayPal. And the day he arrives, his boss, the system administrator, Paul Tuckfield, and the CTO, Max Levchin, essentially say to him, like, here's the root password for the site. Go play around for a little bit, and we'll get back to you. We'll have something for you. So he goes and he sits himself kind of between a couple colleagues, fires up the computer, starts moving around in the database. And something had happened to the site. So all of a sudden, he sees his boss and Max Levchin uh, start walking over to him. And they say, Santos, uh, did you just take the site down? And he looks at them and, you know, pardon the French, but this is him, my reporting, what he's saying. He's like, fuck no. And they, they kind of, his boss and Max sort of look at each other and then they walk away. And what astonished Santosh in that moment is he said, imagine how much trust it took for them. He's like, there was no witch hunt. There was no talk of like, oh, well, you really need to show us what you did. He said, they just trusted me when I said I did not take the site down and they walked away. He found and would meditated on the idea that part of what PayPal did was it hired for that kind of trust. It was exceptionally hard to get in, but once you were in, you were trusted, uh, such that even if, by the way, even if you did take the site down, it, it was okay. That was a, a tough set of stripes to earn, but once you earned them, you were in. He was astonished by it and others were as well. One of the things that someone said to me is, it was amazing how much they got out of people just by giving us a lot of rope and a lot of room to run. Um, it was definitely unorthodox, though, because, again, in any other setting, you wouldn't necessarily do that. Uh, the reason I mentioned Santos's story is PayPal was one of four job offers that he had at the time. And I didn't write this in the book. And it was the lowest dollar amount job offer. And he had student loans. He was married. And he went back to his wife. He went home and he said, I got to take the PayPal offer. And she said, well, hold on. Like it's the lowest offer. Like, and this tech is booming. Like, you're a net talented engineer. How come we can't take any of these others? He said because every person I interviewed at this company is smarter than me, and I promise you, I'll learn more there than I will in these other places. I've got to take this offer, and uh, and he did. And you know, uh, the rest is history. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. 
From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. How much did luck factor into PayPal's success? I mean, the, the idea that a corporate environment like that at some point didn't result in some intern accidentally deleting everything um, is astonishing to me. Well, look, they almost did. Uh, there were a couple of moments that were very, very close. Uh, as I described them, they were close shaves. I think I was riffing on what somebody else had said. I contend, and I don't think everybody who lived this experience would agree with me, but I would argue that luck played a huge factor. And I would say that the luck has a particular hue, and that is timing. So timing matters hugely in this story. And I mean, I haven't studied all of them, but I would argue the story of every great startup or venture, Right. The American Revolution in the late 1700s is different than if it if you tried to do if you tried to overthrow King George in the late 1600s. I'm betting it wouldn't have worked out as well. Um, in 1999 and 2000, PayPal is able to close a hundred million dollar round of funding in early 2000, just before the bottom drops out on the market. And more than one person who was in the company admitted, "Look, without that funding, we would have been toast because we saw plenty of other startups around us that had just as much." You know, they had successful user growth, but they didn't have the runway or the money to continue to refine their product and refine their business. They managed to strike sparks on eBay, a platform that had not figured out its payment services. But if there had been a six month, if, if PayPal had started six months earlier or six months later, eBay might have figured it out or PayPal would have focused on something else. So there's all these ways in which the timing is just right. And I think, by the way, I know that there, there's some disagreements about luck and about the word and about what it means. Peter Thiel has famously said something like, luck is an atheistic word for God. And I would just argue that it wasn't necessarily my judgment that says that luck is at the heart of the story. It was other people, including board members, who said, we had to get lucky. Now, there was a huge amount of skill and an enormous, prodigious work ethic and a lot of other things as well. But the timing and then some of the circumstances. And by the way, even some of the people who came together in the way that they did, I would argue that it's lucky that Peter Thiel and Elon Musk didn't die in the McLaren car crash in early 2000. How, what do you, to what could we ascribe that to other than luck? Yeah. Well, speaking of Elon Musk, he's certainly been touched by the, the gods of luck in most of his ventures. I wonder if he's missed some critical life lessons, though, having not failed more dramatically in life. I mean, can you point to instances where failure has taught him as, as much as his successes have, or are those lessons not there? You know, um, I have a bunch of thoughts here, and I was really fortunate. You know, I, I actually had the chance to talk to him in some ways, sort of the, even the Elon of 2022 is different than the Elon of 2020 is different than the Elon of 2018. And I caught him kind of in that 2018, 2019 period where, you know, he was a big name and obviously had been successful, but he, he wasn't trying to acquire Twitter, <laughs> you know, which sort of right. raised the stock a little bit, literally and figuratively. Um, PayPal is his most pronounced failure. He is kicked out as CEO. 
And what was really interesting to me, one, he was 100% open with talking to me about the failure and about what had happened. Two, is you could tell that he had really gone back and thought about each of the things that contributed to the failure and kind of what he might have done differently. And in some cases, by the way, what he wouldn't have done differently. So I would argue that actually, if you look at the four years that I wrote about, 1998 to 2002, he is almost kicked out as CEO once. Uh, the coup attempt fails. He is successfully kicked out as CEO. He almost dies in a car accident. He contracts malaria and meningitis and almost dies again, uh, comes within hours of death. And he loses a child to SIDS. And so it's not, I think, accurate when people look at him and say, well, he was to the manor born and all of this was foreordained and, you know, he just got lucky. Or and it, This is a person who I would argue has faced his share of personal and public or corporate failures. And I think he is, he is somebody who, at least in the PayPal instance, the specific place that I was speaking to him about, he was very keen and sort of smart about the human dimensions of the, of the challenge, as well as the technological differences that led to his ousting. And so I would actually argue, you know, he's got his share of, of things that haven't, haven't quite worked out. I also, though, you know, he's somebody who once he has a mission and sort of once he becomes single-minded about that mission, you know, it will take a force of nature to stop him. I mean, I think one of the things that Peter Thiel said to me that was most evocative is like, a big lesson I've learned is don't compete against Elon Musk. You know, he was an early investor in SpaceX, Peter Thiel, even after having some differences of opinion with Elon and PayPal. And he said it, a big part of the reason is you just don't bet against him. Of the failures he's had, it was the one most, obviously, it was work-related. And it's the one that he seemed to have gained the most from along the way. But I would also say, like, part of what he appreciates, and I think, oh, I hope people come, this comes across in the book, is startups are basically an exercise in, like, ongoing failure, right? There's a way in which the entire industry is premised on the idea that you are going to fail, but that like you hopefully won't fail into oblivion, that you'll fail just enough to learn something and then improve. I think that's actually a uh, useful uh, heuristic or a useful way of thinking about the lives of some of these individuals as well. There's a lot of wistful 90s nostalgia in the <laughs> book, but you, you also talk about the, and this is in some of your your other interviews, but you talk about the rise of a more combative politics in that time and the dot-com bust and other financial crises. How do you think the political moment we're living in now is connected to the, I'll call it the tech utopianism of that era um, that you describe? It's a good question. Um, and I'll be candid in saying I'm not sure that I'm the I'm not sure I'm, I'm necessarily the best observer or the, the best person to comment on 2022 politics necessarily. Unlike you, I have the good fortune of being able to keep some of it at arm's length. Um, <laughs> you know, not all of us run for Congress. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, I think there's no denying the effect of some of the success of some of these individuals on politics. You know, they have big megaphones. But if you look at two of the leading figures in this group, Peter Thiel and Reid Hoffman, you have two people who are massive contributors to rival parties, right? So in a funny way, what I found was it was actually hard for me to pin down anyone's politics. I actually had to sometimes like listen extra carefully if, if I was trying to pin it down. I do think there is coming out of this cluster of people, but also just generally a kind of a libertarianism that finds its way into the water in both parties. I mean, I think you have kind of libertarian-leaning Democrats, even if they wouldn't admit it, and libertarian-leaning Republicans, even if they wouldn't admit it. And then I think you have a tension within each party to struggle with that kind of keep the government out of my business type of, of thinking. But I would also submit that for the people I interviewed, politics occupies a relatively small amount of their mindshare. And, and it occupies a huge amount of the mindshare of the media. And so there's a great deal of coverage, for example, on Peter's politics, but I, I don't know this for a fact, but I would venture to guess that if you took his Google calendar and looked at it, politics is probably 5% or 1% of his time, right? Um, same would be true of, of Reid Hoffman. They're investors and advisors to tech companies helping, you know, younger versions of themselves scale firms and doing up various other things, right, that they do. The one thing I would say is this, we had this moment 
which was quite friendly from a regulatory perspective for technology, uh, kind of in the 90s. This was like the Clinton years, right? Um, which again, I don't want to cover with gauzy nostalgia, but there's a fair amount of like leeway and latitude that was given to the internet by both parties, right? And then you had the dot-com bust, but you didn't see like a big regulatory reaction to the dot-com bust, right? It was sort of understood as part of what happens when, you know, shaky firms are built on shaky foundations and they crater, right? There wasn't some big like, oh, we need to do this and that and the other thing to fix the system. And you sort of had a regulatory grace period in the aftermath when the next generation of web companies come to rise. I think we're seeing a different, a different strain of our politics today as regards tech. And again, I'm not the most sophisticated observer of the rightness or wrongness of that. I just think it is different. To build a tech company in 2022, if you are engaged in financial services, is very different than what PayPal was doing in 1999, when they could literally get meetings in DC with people who didn't know what the internet was, and they could just sort of do the Obi-Wan Kenobi, like these aren't the droids you're looking for, right? It's like, these aren't the financial services firms you're looking to regulate, right? And they could run a little bit of an end around. The politics is caught up. It's more sophisticated. And I think it's more challenging now to do the kinds of things that PayPal was doing back then. But, you know, one of the things that I think I learned from the book is these firms find a way. They find a way in and out in the same way that Uber and Airbnb and others have found a way in and out of various regulatory frameworks that have been imposed on them. You're talking mostly about the impact of politics on on these firms. Yes. Surely you've got opinions about the impact of these firms and the technologies they have birthed on on politics itself from fintech and its democratization of political giving to Facebook and its impact on the the media landscape. I mean, I wonder if Elon and his buddies, folks in his orbit, had any idea of what was about to be unleashed in terms of the effect of tech on the political landscape. Yeah. I wish I was a more sophisticated observer of those trends. And I have this habit of when I do a book, I kind of bury myself from like 1998 to 2002. And I read news clips from 1998 to 2002. And I watch videos from that era. And I try to understand, you know, who's playing in the Super Bowl and, you know, what happened that was, it was like, what was Y2K? Why were people so panicked about Y2K, right? Um, you remember that planes were going to fall out of the sky and ATMs were going to spit out money as soon as, 1999 rolled in the 2000. And I think one of the things it does a lot, it affords me a certain amount of like blissful ignorance about some of what's happened as regards like tech's effect on politics. I mean, the best as I can tell is that the megaphones on both sides have gotten louder and more shrill um, and arguably more dangerous. But again, I'm not like the most sophisticated observer. I think that like almost all tools, technology, in the positive case, it gave people who are participating in politics, lone voices, the ability to build audiences that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to build, to fundraise, to get a message out into the world they couldn't have gotten, they couldn't have gotten out before, right? If you're a congressman 20, 30 years ago, you issue a press release, today you issue a tweet. There's good that comes with that. There's also a lot of downside that comes with that. I think the same is true of Facebook, but I'm not sure that it, that it, um, I think we have a tendency to overestimate whether it reconfigured American public life or whether it just accelerated trends that were already going on, right? So if you look at the history of the 90s and you look at the rise of, of Newt Gingrich and you look at the kind of like Clinton-Gingrich wars, right, and you look at the, the tenor of politics then, back then we said it was the worst it was ever going to get, right? Um, and I mean, you and I kind of came of age in that, in that milieu, right, where you have government shutdowns and all of the rest. And so did Twitter and Facebook accelerate some of those trends? Certainly. But I would argue that there, there hasn't been necessarily a wholesale reconfiguration, right? Um, both sides have an equivalent number of angry tweets. They, they volley at each other. And again, I'm not, but I'm also not well-versed enough in the literature to know. It strikes me that it, it's sort of like if you were to do the, the scales analysis on it, the scales would kind of balance out. They probably balance out for the for the ill of the Republic, but I'm not sure that there's some, I think we, we tend to overestimate these, these massive changes when the changes were already in the water in the nineties. You could disagree with everything I just said. By the way. You might, you <laughs> well, lived, it. You I, lived it as a candidate. No, I, I am, I'm not going to disagree with you here. Cause I want to, I want to talk about the book, but I, I think we're going to have 
Dan Pfeiffer either right before or after you, and he's going to provide the counterpoint. So we'll we'll leave it at <laughs> we'll leave it at that. There are a lot of strong feelings on on both sides. This one's kind of out, out of left field, but I I know a lot of my audience will appreciate it. Is there a military fetish in tech? I mean, you have. Elon Musk comparing one of his first companies to an F-35 fighter. Reed Hoffman saying the early PayPal days were like Band of Brothers. CTO describing the early team as, quote, like veterans of an intense (laughs) military campaign. And the one that aggravated me most was the term the staff came up with to describe the stress of working there, PayPal PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that got a, a big eye roll. But I, I wonder if there's something more interesting going on. Like, is there a, a fantastical element at play here? Are they imagining themselves uh, on, on some field they're not really on? You know, it's funny. I, I hadn't really picked up on it until you strung all the, the metaphors together. And obviously that would have jumped out at you. Um, Two or three thoughts. The first is, I think American business in particular has always had an inclination toward martial metaphors, right? Um, the hostile takeover, right? Uh, like, like, there's a tendency, even in, call it the most buttoned up, most humdrum, stodgy businesses, to see an opponent and to want to fight to the death and to really want to win. I mean, I, I think that, that th- those metaphors exist in other places, I do think you're picking up on something. I wouldn't call it a fetish. That's probably going a little too far. But I would, there were a number of martial metaphors, the ones that you referenced, as well as others that people mentioned to me. The one that came up most was the feeling that this group was like a band of guerrilla fighters. So that was a word that came up again and again. And the reason is all startups feel that, feel that way. They all feel like they're small, underfunded, besieged, and beset on all sides by like, enemies and foes and opponents that they have to fight back against, right? And so there's a feeling that they are small and that they are taking on something big. Now, is that martial? Sure. But there's also a biblical quality to it. It is the story of David versus Goliath, right? That metaphor, I actually think, is the feeling internally. And I would argue that, sure, there's some parts of it that probably aren't great. But what it did for the team, I noticed a bond in this team, a sense that teammates actually valued each other. They might've been fighting like cats and dogs, but there was a real ethic. There was a a gentleman, Jeremy Royball, who was supposed to be an ESL teacher and found his way to customer service at PayPal and then found his way to fraud operations at PayPal. And one of the first things he said to me is, to this day, I still bleed PayPal blue, right? And that's a heck of a thing to say about a a payment services startup that you worked at, right? Um, But there was an intensity of devotion to the team that I found consonant with some people who speak about their military experience. That's one reason is they felt like they were guerrilla fighters. The other is there, there was an intensity of the experience itself. So it was not uncommon for these people to work seven days a week for several years. Uh, in fact, that was, that was very common was that this was not a normal nine to five that went Monday through Friday, that in fact, it bled over into all parts of your life. And I've never been on a deployment, but I imagine Ken, that that is probably true of being on a deployment. You don't sort of clock out at, at five o'clock on a Friday. You're, you're still wherever you are on Saturday and Sunday. So there was the intensity of the experience. You know, it's interesting that, and I hadn't really thought about it until now, but there are a number of veterans that do join the PayPal team. There was one Navy veteran who ended up actually joining, I think it was an assistant administrator role. And then there was one of my favorite characters in the book was in, in fraud operations. His name is John Kotonic, and he was a Marine. And he spoke like a Marine and he looked like a Marine and he rode motorcycles. And he was one of the, to the team anyway, one of the more endearing figures and saw in his work fighting bad actors, sort of this same sense of mission that he had when he was a Marine. And so he became kind of one of PayPal's chief fraud fighters. And he had this great line in the book. He says, wild horses couldn't have drugged me out of that profession. And today he does, the, he leads the investigations team at Coinbase. So what he has said proved true he has not been able to get out of this profession. But his belief in the rightness of fighting fraud online and the desire to sort of work with law enforcement to understand that these things, you know, that there was sort of a, you know, there was like a good and evil struggle happening that if you were defrauding somebody using PayPal, you were a bad guy and we need to go after you. Uh, it's not hard to see where some of that vocabulary is drawn from his military experience. But I, I honestly, you know, 
I think Silicon Valley has it, but what part of American business doesn't, right? Jack Welch was talking about this back when, and probably, you know, his acolytes still are. Uh, but I would identify those things. And Esprit de Corps, as well as the sense that they are a beleaguered team, like small, underfunded, trying to battle these giants. Yeah. I think the difference between the typical business metaphor and what I picked up on in, in your descriptions of of PayPal is how the the Marshall rhetoric described the relationships within the company, not mm. just the the oppositional business competition, but you know, it described how they felt about e- each other in a way that a lot of businesses or most businesses don't. Um, to that point, there's this banner that you describe hanging in the early PayPal office with the words memento mori, which is Latin for remember that you will die. (laughs) And I think the interpretation of that for the staff was you got to work your ass off here or, or die trying. That's how they were supposed to read it, right? Yes. Um, It shows you, I think how nutty you can get when you are fighting an early nineties, late nineties internet battle. But PayPal properly understood is really the fusion of these two companies. One is called Confinity, and it's started by Max Levchin and Peter Thiel. And one is called X.com, and it's started by Elon Musk. And at one point, in a quirk of history, call it, they're basically fighting each other over market share on eBay, payments market share on eBay. And it's an intense battle. And if I had one moment where there were like more martial metaphors per minute than any other, this was the moment. Like when I'd interview people and I'd talk about this, it's when all of the competitiveness came out. And one of the things that the Confinity team does is they see in Elon a true competitor, somebody who could outgun them, somebody who moves just as quickly as them. And this is a strange experience for, for Max, who's pretty competitive himself. And what happens is what, what Elon refers to as the widget wars. So one website would put up something that day, an update, really designed to like win more market share. And a few hours later, the other website would have like kind of copied the same effort or initiative. And on and on it went for several weeks. In the thick of that fight, somebody in the company had put up Memento Mori, remember that you must die. And what Memento Mori was, was for Confinity, it was a reminder that X.com, which was just a few blocks away in Palo Alto, was always there and they were always going to be up late and they were always going to be updating. And the point was we need to stay one step ahead of them. And it's actually this really interesting moment in the story. These are enormous minds that have a lot of confidence in in Elon and Max, self-confidence. Both of them in recounting this period, both of them said to me, you know, like Elon's line was, it was a really worthy opponent here with these PayPal people. Like, you know, if you can keep up, he said, he said at one point, he's like, if you can keep up with me, respect. And Max said, you know, this guy, Elon, is brilliant. Like, I may be competing against him, and we don't like each other very much right now, but I recognize he's really, really smart. And so there was this recognition, and this is, again, a rare thing for people who are generally, in most rooms they're in, you know, the smartest or second smartest person in the room, they both had this, and that, out of that emerges Memento Mori. By the way, the other, the other thing that emerges from that is there's an engineer who's celebrating a birthday and instead of putting, you know, happy birthday, you pan on his birthday, which is what one would do, they put die x.com die. <laughs> and so this competition gets ferocious and it seems incongruous to all of us. But at the time, just to put, again, put context around it, both companies thought that if they did not win, they would run out of funding and they would have to either go raise more money, which was going to be harder as the dot-com bubble started to burst, or they were just going to have to like let everybody go and go find other jobs. And so we can laugh at it, I think, in hindsight. And I did. By the way, I wrote it with some comedy and levity, hopefully, in the book. But it was to them, it was a serious competitor that was trying to defeat them, and they were going to do everything they could to win. I wonder if anybody in the office at the time, and this is the thought I kind of want to wrap up with, I wonder if anybody perceived a subtext to memento mori mm. remember that you will die and wondered if they were living their their best lives <laughs> i mean i i approach most of what i do now as a husband and father and measure my success mostly in those terms and so i guess my question is you know what would cato think of all this in your um in the time you spent with elon did you get the sense that he's a happy fulfilled guy um 
the remember that you will die aphorism is also a reminder to focus on what what is really important, which is the people around you. Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, it's interesting because he's been more personally revealing in in interviews of late. Um, I think he's hit 50 or 51. uh, And there's probably some some element to this. There's actually a wonderful book about the early days of SpaceX. And at the very end of this book, not to, it's not giving anything away, you know, the, the rockets succeed. <laughs> it's the reason the company's still around. But at the end, Elon has this meditation that he gives to the author, Eric Berger. He says, you know, I probably would have been okay if every time we had come to these beaches off the coast of Hawaii, I had actually just sort of stopped and tried to enjoy them a little bit more. And Eric Berger, the author, writes, uh, there's still time. Um, uh, it's one of my favorite endings to a book, uh, cause it's sort of a message in a bottle in some ways. I don't think that at the time when they were in their twenties trying to make it in the world that these people were considering anything other than the success or failure of the company. And I think memento mori meant the company was going to die. Not that they ought to stop and wonder if this is a great way to live their lives. Um, I push back on one thing though, which is there's, there's public persona Elon, which people see on Twitter and see written about in the press. And then there is the Elon that many employees would play back to me uh, and the Elon that I experienced when I interviewed him. And this is somebody who is very, very quick with a joke and has a kind of, has a great sense of humor. And yes, he's intense. And I think he's single-minded and sort of focused on the success of his companies. But I, I, I would, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze him. I think it goes too far when authors try to do that. But this wasn't somebody that came into the room with me in a depressive mood, despite having laid off a bunch of people at one of his companies the day before he was supposed to talk to me. This isn't somebody who, it would be really hard for him to make the hosting SNL thing work if he were somebody that were just preternaturally like sad and, and only, you know, looking for one thing and one thing alone. I think building these companies is incredibly hard. I think it takes its toll. It's like an endless political campaign, right? You're always trying to raise money. You're always trying to figure out what sparks are going to strike. And it takes its toll. But I don't think of him actually as somebody who has ignored some of the bigger things in, in life. But more, more broadly, I mean, I think his, he's decided what his mission is in life, right? Which is getting humanity to Mars. And people can be for or against that mission. And I think people do argue about that all day, every day. Um, but for him, that is the mission, right? And so does being mission-driven mean that you necessarily exclude other things in your life? Sure. But that I think could be said of Cato as well, right? Cato, his mission was, was liberty in Rome and he gave his last full measure of devotion and killed himself rather than submit to Caesar's tyranny. Do we look at that and think, boy, there might've been a better way around that outcome? Like, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. But we also remember him as a symbol of sacrifice for the ideal of liberty. I I'm careful about not casting judgment, right? When I write, I try to get into the heads of my subjects and use their words and use some of their ideas and try to make it, you know, entertaining and try to bring it to life. But I, when I interviewed the people around who worked with Elon, they enjoyed that experience. It was the most intense working experience of their lives, but it was also super enjoyable. They felt like they were a part of something important as part of something bigger than themselves. And that can seem a little odd when you're talking about, again, like a late 1990s payment services startup, but would that we could all work in places like that. I mean, I think most people would feel lucky if they had a place like that, that they worked. And that's what I, I tried to capture, and I hope I did. No, I think you did. Um, I think I want to end with a, a quote from Elon, which is really a window into his mindset. And it's from when he was really young. He says, I had an existential crisis when I was 12 or 13, and I was trying to figure out what does it all mean? Why are we here? Is it all meaningless? <laughs> I mean, I'm glad I wasn't thinking about those kinds of things when I was, uh, when I was 13 years old. But I guess, yeah. I guess we need people in the world who do. Uh, Jimmy, it's thank a heavy you. Burden. It's a heavy burden for somebody who's 12, man. I, didn't, I wasn't doing that when I was 12. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- thanks for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Ken. Thanks again to Jimmy for joining me. Make sure to check out his book, The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. You can also find him on Twitter and Instagram at Jimmy A. Sony. 
Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.